Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and today I would like to talk about how we as parents can look at our child's life and look at our parenting with the goal of helping to maintain and create beautiful, inclusive, full, wonderful lives for our children. And with me today, I have Genia Steven, who helps kids with intellectual disabilities build inclusive lives at home, at school, and in the community. She is the founder and host of the Good Things in Life for Kids with Disabilities podcast and manages a community of parents of children with disabilities. Jeannie, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and uh, excited to be spending some more time with you. Thank you. So I want to ask you about yourself and how you came into disability work to begin with. Yeah, sure. So I have a younger sister. I mean, we're not young anymore. We're in our 40s, but a a younger sister who has an intellectual disability. And I had the great fortune of having a mother who was a really fierce advocate and who really kind of brought our whole family on board. So I had the great blessing of growing up in a disability positive community surrounded by, you know, internationally renowned uh, thought leaders and and mentors, and I really received a world class disability parenting education just growing up. And you know, I I did um, some work in the disability field and presented and t- did some teaching um, myself as well. And then 14 years ago, uh, I had my second son, and my second son has disabilities as well. So then I uh, kind of came on board as um, as a parent and. Um, in addition to, to being a sister. And, you know, my, my mom was really involved in the disability parent movement, um, you know, for my sister's whole life. And she still is. And I was not really sure where I fit into that. And my, um, my other world is that I'm a a midwife, a registered midwife in Ontario, Canada. Over um, many years, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of families and it became really apparent that the experience of most parents of having a child with a disability was very dramatically different from what I had experienced. And I already knew that. But one of the key differences that I was seeing over and over again was that one, I didn't have to unlearn a bunch of stuff, but also just the who surrounded me and the kinds of ideas that surrounded me when my son was born was dramatically different than what other parents experience. And so, you know, when my mom first um, received a diagnosis from my sister, you know, parents of her generation either look something up on, you know, in the yellow pages, which some young parents might be even so young as to not remember, but the phone book used to be how we found phone numbers. Um, You know, they would look something up in the phone book, or maybe their family doctor would provide them with a brochure or something like that. And they would get connected with another parent or an organization or that kind of thing. But what happens for parents now is that they get a diagnosis or even the suspicion of a diagnosis, you know, they're in that unsure, uncertain um, phase of things. And they will immediately Google that diagnosis. And what they get from Google is a list of complications and a list of Facebook groups around that diagnosis or treatment modality. And those, that list of complications and those, the Facebook groups around a specific disability tend to then frame those future conversations. In addition to that, you know, most parents are introduced to a medical model of disability, meaning their idea of what disability means is based in an allopathic Western medicine model. And then they go into the school system, which has sort of a similar model, medical model. Um, And so I just decided that perhaps my place in the parent movement was to meet parents where they are when they're starting, which is online, because now we have this amazing capacity to find each other and to come together online. Um, But that I would create a space where instead of coming together around a diagnosis, parents had the opportunity to come together around a shared vision of a positive life for their child with a disability and to support each other to figure out how to access the good things in life for, for our kids. Wow, that is a mission. I I love the idea of coming outside of the medical model, outside of diagnosis-focused framework to look at everything not as what's lacking, what's missing, what's wrong, 
um, and instead say, what do we have and what are our opportunities and how do we make this amazing and great for mm-hmm. our, for our life? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's not to say that, that, you know, medicine or therapy or intervention or treatment has no place in our kids' lives. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying. Of course. Um, but I, I do firmly believe that, you know, the, the treatments, the, the therapies, the interventions, they need to be in service of something bigger. They're the means to, to a particular end. Yeah. They're not the end in of themselves. But when we're, you know, going to all these um, doctor's appointments and therapists and, you know, they're coming up with these plans, often which we can't reasonably even keep up with and still maintain any kind of, you know, typical life. Um, it's, it's really all about the intervention as opposed to figuring out how that therapy or that intervention actually serves to help them have a good life. And if we haven't defined what a good life is, then we can't really know whether or not our interventions are helping. And one of the things that I believe to be true is that whether our interventions work or don't work, we're still left with the same questions about how to help somebody have a good life. So when, you know, the physiotherapist or the occupational therapist is saying, well, you know, um, you you need to do these exercises so that your child can um, walk properly or, you know, run and play or those kinds of things. I know that's not an audiology example, but you know, that's great. But whether the child ever learns to walk and run or doesn't learn to walk and run, the playing with other kids and developing friendships still needs to be pursued. And some kids are not going to learn to walk and run. That's right. Mm -hmm. So if you're only focused on, you know, the development of the walking and the running, you're missing out on the potential for um, play and friendship. If nobody has, you know, helped you think about what actually matters around play and friendship. Yes. Walking and running matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. It's not the only wedge to get to play and friendship. Yes. And this reflects, I think, the conversation that we have all the time about learning to speak, that children who are born deaf or with severe hearing loss, we, we you know, let's do cochlear implants, let's do intense, intense auditory verbal therapy to teach them to speak. And for some children, that's going to be the way and that's really successful and they become mainstream and go on and do anything that a typical hearing child might do, but not for everybody. For some kids, that isn't the thing that's going to work. (laughs) You know, there's lots of other factors that go into whether or not they'll be able to learn to speak. But the question of why do we want someone to speak so that they can communicate Mm -hmm. and, hey, we can get to that in a different uh, road and all the roads will lead to communication. So maybe we have different communication Mm -hmm. modalities. That's a big message on this show. There are all these different routes to get to your goal, but you have to know what the goal is and not make the path itself to be the end goal. Like you must learn to speak. And I just have to share one uh, Instagram post that's coming to my mind. And I don't know who said it. This is months ago. But it was a mom who shared that she had seen her child struggling week after week after week to pronounce the word bus in Uh, auditory verbal therapy and that was the entire goal was for them to be able to say in succession these three sounds to put together b-u-s for bus and that meanwhile he was signing three word Mm -hmm. combinations and he was requesting and he was like he was able to do so much in communication and they were so focused on just this uh, Mm -hmm. articulation and she she just had that moment with the the one session about constantly trying to get him to say this with articulators that maybe you know he didn't have the motor strength for or the, the, the hearing ability for mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's my point. well i i'm recalling <laughs> that so when you're talking yes we want kids to speak it matters it absolutely matters and communication is um critically important but if they never have anybody to talk to then it doesn't matter nearly so much i'm reminded of um uh, a story that Norman Kuntz um, tells. And Norm is a disability advocate. He's a well-known speaker and he has cerebral palsy. And he talks about when he quit speech therapy 
And um, he was transitioning from a school for kids with cerebral palsy. This is decades ago. A school in Toronto for kids with cerebral palsy without intellectual disabilities, um, where they received intensive speech therapy, to a regular school with his neighborhood peers. And one of the arguments against him making this transition um, was that he wouldn't have this intensive speech therapy. And, um, you know, he, anyway, he tells the story much better than I do. And I can um, give you the link to the podcast episode where he tells this story, if that, um, if your listeners would be interested, but you know, what, that's one of the things that he said to his speech therapist is that if I don't have anybody to talk to, what does it matter how well I speak? And in fact, what happened is that he did transition to the neighborhood school and he found that, um, you know, some people, when he spoke to them in his regular voice, they could understand him and that went well, but other people couldn't understand him. And he noticed that they just sort of started to smile and nod and their eyes would glaze over and the conversation and, you know, and they would find a reason to discontinue the conversation. Um, unless he used a speech therapy voice, which was highly articulated, you know, and what he found is that he had to use his speech therapy voice so much in order to be understood and to develop relationships and be heard by his teachers that his regular speaking voice became clearer and clearer and clearer. And so, you know, he jokes about the fact that, you know, the trick to him developing really comprehensible speech was actually quitting speech therapy. Yeah. And going to immersive. Yeah. Yeah. Because he had the reason he, well, it's not, Yes, it's immersive, but the point for for him and the point that I'm trying to make is that it's about the friendships and, you know, being in that student role and not actually about the intervention, mm-hmm. you know? And so maybe more about the motivation for succeeding. Yeah. 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 We can talk about it as a therapy or an, in, or an intervention and we can talk about the importance of, you know, role modeling and immersion regardless of your, your modality of communication. And that's important in recognizing that when you pursue something like friendships and play, I think parents should feel confident that they are actually not giving up or selling out their therapy goals. You know, so that's a, that's a helpful piece for parents who are worried about making sure that they get all of the hours of therapy in, in you know, that you're not actually getting rid of your therapeutic goals. But I think the other piece is that, you know, you have to know where you want to go in order to get there. We don't get a lot of help with that as parents of kids with impairments or disabilities, you know? So, you know, a lot of, an awful lot of people are ending up, you know, graduating from high school and finding that they have no life because they've always had, you know, therapy goals and they've had educational goals, but they haven't actually been building a good life, rich with relationship and, and opportunity and expectation, high expectations. Um, so I, I, you know, part of what I talk a lot about is just taking the time to, um, to set a vision of, you know, what are the good things in life mean to you? And probably it's pretty much the same as what the good things in life mean to me. There's actually been some research to show that kind of across the globe, if you ask people, what are the good things in life? There are slight differences, but they're more different flavors of the same ideas, you know? Um, so things like, you know, our basic needs like shelter and, you know, reliable healthcare and food. But then beyond that, it's things like friendships, uh, an opportunity to contribute, um, a sense of belonging, ongoing personal growth. You know, these are the kinds of things that, are the good things in life and that are kind of the ultimate, the ultimate, like if we're going to set a goal, you know, if we start with those and work backwards, Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're likely, uh, we may not get everything we want, but we're likely to get a lot of really good things. We reach for the moon. And even if you miss, you land among the stars. (laughs) I I had that poster growing up for a long while. (laughs) Exactly. You know, and it, and it may not be spectacular, but when you consider the alternative, you know, the alternative of not having a vision or the alternative of being stuck in a mindset of deficit and, and disability and, um, and lack and low expectations, 
you know, the, the stars and the moon aren't even on yeah. the map as a possibility. I've heard uh, some parenting um, advisors and advocates talk about how a lot of times we see it as raising children, which is what we do as parents, but that some of our goals also have to be that we're raising adults, uh, raising children to become adults so that they won't always be dependent yeah. on us and they won't always need us. And it's, I think, even more so apparent when there's disability or special needs or anything else going on that, you know, you have, you have this both sides because on one hand, they really do need support and assistance. On the other hand, we do want to also foster independence. What are some ideas that you can share, strategies for developing independence within the context of the child's needs? Well, I think that um, particularly within the realm of disability, I mean that broadly, not specifically. I don't mean to, to say that this applies to every single person with any kind of impairment or disability or special needs. And, you know, that's, I just have to say right there that that's what's so hard about a lot of these conversations is that it is so case of by course. case and severity is so different. So that's just for the whole conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. In general, but not suggesting that everybody fits into the in general, but certainly as people's impairments or disabilities or needs, you know, special needs um, get more complex. There, there's two ideas that I think are really helpful. Um, one is thinking, maybe three. One is thinking about interdependence instead of independence and autonomy as just a really good model for human life and community, not just specific to people with disabilities, but particularly if you're thinking about fostering or raising adults, future adults, as you're saying, thinking about human community as a model of inter interdependence, I think is more productive than thinking about how to help people to be independent. Because the bottom line is that none of us are. And people with disabilities that are very, very significant may not be able to have the kind of independence that we might think of as the stereotypical independence of an adult. And that's not a problem. When you think about it as a model of interdependence, that's not a problem. If you think about... So will you just define what that means? Yeah. The, the idea of interdependence is really just this understanding that we are all very much connected in both need and contribution. And so I might have um, some gifts to give you that you desperately need. And maybe what I give to you, um, Leela, is direct support, you know, like interpretation or translation or personal care, personal um, physical care. Perhaps the gifts that you give to me are a sense of safety and security and um, trust and you know I know that I can talk to you and um, that I'm a safe safe space and a safe person for you and um, you know these I'm just making up examples here but the idea of interdependence is that we all have both needs and contributions um, in this world and it undermines the idea that any of us are kind of solo actors in our lives. Um, and we have a lot of illusion of that, particularly in modern Western capitalist society, but it really is, um, it really is an illusion. You know, I, th I think it's sort of been an interesting opportunity, the, the coronavirus pandemic and COVID-19 as, as our societies have shut down for safety. And we've been, the conversations that have been happening around you know, what is an essential service and then all of the impacts. In some ways, most of how we work as a society to support each other is invisible to us. I think right now around racism and anti-racism and the responsibility that um, people and, and others have to pay a cost in order to address and, and even provide reparation for the harm that has been caused to Black people and people of color. And I think that it's also this interdependence piece. One of the things that I think a lot of people aren't, aren't clear about is that Black people and people of color um, 
have like all of the things that make us like all the illusion that we are actually where we are in our lives because of something inherently independent or inherent about us is actually built on those bodies and the work of black people and people of color and structures of racism. And so it's an interesting time to be having conversations about interdependence, you know, because um, it can be healthy or it can be unhealthy. And, you know, if there's an unhealthy imbalance in, in contribution versus need, you know, or want or exploitation um, in this case, it needs to be repaired, you know, or, or systems are going to break down. When we're talking about disability and supporting kids with disabilities to grow up to be adults, we need to be thinking um, about interdependence, both as a healthy, healthy model and a reality, but also having high expectations that our kids are going to not just require support, but that they're going to make a contribution to their community as well. It's part of what leads to the good things in life, both for our kids and in community in general. Yeah. I'm very glad that you mentioned that. I think that's incredibly important. When, when we talk about parents and children, many times people will see it as, you know, there is an authority over here. There is power that the parent has over the child. And that's, you know, that's just Mm -hmm. the nature of the relationship, but then there's abuse of power where, where that, that is a whole different conversation. So it's not like we're saying everyone's equal and, and there's no kind of hierarchy of, yeah. Uh, but there's still always respect and dignity. Yeah. So the second idea that I think is helpful when we're talking about raising future adults is the idea of social capital, the social currency that we exchange in human interaction. Um, and it's very closely connected to interdependence, but it highlights it's about relationship. You and I now know each other. We've had, we've spent some time talking both on our podcasts and, you know, before and after. And so we've got a, you know, we've got the beginning of a nice social bank account with each other. So if I call you and say, Leela, I need some help. Um, you know, I'm running this webinar. I think your audience would really like it. Um, here's what it's about. And here's how it's going to be of value to you. You are more likely to say, yes, let's do it. than if somebody that you have never met sends you the exact same message, right? So I now have social capital with you and you have it with me, which means that in our future interactions, if we need, if one of us needs something in some way needs an opportunity, um, then we're likely to help each other. What we know from, from some research is that people with disabilities have less than one fifth the number of significant relationships and compared to people without disabilities. So what does this mean? It means that um, the reference letter that helped you get into university, you know, phone call from somebody who can lend you a lawnmower or a cup of sugar or drive you to the hospital for an important test or the person that helps you get a job. Like there's very little actually good in our lives that, that has happened strictly because of something intrinsic to us. Most of the good stuff we get help with from people who have some string of connection, social connection with us. So when we're thinking about raising adults who experience their life as good and positive, thinking right from when they're really young, about our own social capital and how we live in community and also thinking about our kids' social capital is immensely powerful because particularly if your child is going to need ongoing additional support in any capacity, then the more people that they have in their life that care about them, even almost superficially, you know, that, that just have a, a social bank account that has some positive inputs in it, the more likely they are to be successful and to have access to those good things in life that are almost always mediated by the people who are willing to help us out, who we interact with. Yeah. Someone who will bring you some soup when you're sick. Yeah. I think I heard it on your podcast in your, your recent episode about coronavirus about being the, the sole care provider and what if, what if you get sick yeah. and your child only has you as the dependent? Yeah. What if they get sick? You know? yeah. 
right? Yeah. It was you, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was definitely I'm, me. I'm going to link that episode as well. Yeah. yeah. So we often are thinking about our kids as kids that need stuff. I, you know, not, I don't think we always think about this negatively, but we're, you know, we're advocating for what they need. We're, you know, we're trying to get them what they need, but you know, think about the power of thinking about the people who live on your block or on the floor of your apartment building or who, you know, I don't know, go to the same grocery store. It depends on where you live and what your community structure is like. Think about how powerful it would be to think about what's lovely about your child and who needs that in their life. You know, like your child could be the child that is you know, walking the dog of the person who's getting to a point that where they're elderly and it's hard to do, um, or, you know, who shovels the snow or who brings in the mail or who drops off a card on special occasions or, you know, and, and that social capital, just, just like a good financial investment that's doing well, it, it grows with compound interest. And so we can help our kids to be really well supported and embedded in a healthy and good community later in life by helping them to be contributors early in life and throughout. Yes. And you're talking about IRL in real life, human to human in person interactions. Cause I think as much as the internet is amazing and has done so much for community, it's also uh, shouldn't come at the expense of who do you know in person who can, you know, literally bring you a cup of soup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that's absolutely true. And there are things that we can be doing right now if our, if our lives are shut down from in real life interaction for, for sure. Like it's, it doesn't stop that possibility of contribution. In fact, I think right now, um, and hopefully when, by the time this podcast airs, none of us are going to be thinking about this anymore. That's my fantasy and my, Amen. And my hope. <laughs> but, you know, um, presuming that there is still some effect from closures, people, I think right now are, you know, I think as parents, we're nervous sometimes about reaching out. You know, we're worried, we're fearful of the rejection of the funny looks or the comments or, you know, the cold shoulders. But I think right now there's a, there's actually a great opportunity that our kids will be received with a, with a yes and a thank you because people are feeling the isolation. Uh, if there's an opportunity to reach out to somebody, even in really small ways, um, I, I think our kids have an even better chance right now of being received well. Yes. And I think it also goes back to what your goals are. When you Absolutely. have your clear goal, we talked about this on, on mm -hmm. your show about the FIG method and how when we know our goals, we know what we are hoping for, what we're trying to achieve. Um, that gives us a lot of clarity on what to do. Yeah. So I love that your whole outlook is about having this big vision. Yep. A big vision, yeah. yeah, and something to strive for where, where it's it, you come out of the day to day and the semester to semester, year to year uh, school services, or you know yearly appointments or things that are happening every day, every month, and saying, what about this this life? How does our life look like? Yeah. and evaluating that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and speaking to to your fig method, you know the and and what you're saying about like every semester and this sort of iterative life we have if you know what your vision is in the long term then some of those like school placement decisions for example or IEP I'm not sure um, you know here it's individualized education plans but I know they get called different things different places but all those kinds of decisions become a lot easier in, so, in some circumstances, because you, you know that your goals for this semester or this school year or um, this doctor or therapist's appointment is in service to something else. So it gets easier to kind of wade through the swamp sometimes. It's very difficult sometimes to figure out what is in your best interest. But if you know where you're headed, in my experience and the experience of other parents um, that I've spoken with, it gets so much easier to just recognize the stuff that's just a distraction essentially from what is most important. I think having that big vision is, is, is really, really critical. Um, and the third idea that um, I think is helpful if we're thinking about um, raising future adults is social construct of 
social roles and valued social roles. So most of our, you know, we talked about social capital and our interactions. Most of our human interactions happen because of our social roles. So if you are a parent or a teacher or a principal or a student, then you get to walk into a school. If you, or perhaps a delivery person, you know, those are all roles. If you are just some random dude walking down the street, you don't get to go into the class. Like that's, there is no role there for you, right? It's not appropriate. There's no context. And, and what a social role is can actually be broken down into chunks that are, you can address. So thinking about like, what is a friend? Um, or let's use student. It's actually more straightforward. You can think, parents can think about their kid and their kid's educational context, whatever that is. What is a student? What do they look like? Where, how do they spend their time? How do they measure, uh, you know, whether or not they truly belong? These are all things that um, we're not trying to shove every kid into a mold. It's not like that because, you know, there's a huge variation on what's expected in the role of student, but you can actually help your child to belong and to be seen as a student with great potential and a learner by thinking about what the social role is. And you can also think about what are the typical social roles of a young adult? You know, while they might still be a learner, they might still be a student, you know, in post-secondary kinds of education or other um, kinds of learning environments. They might be um, you know, a tenant for the first time, you know, renting their first apartment and be a tenant. They're likely to, to have a lot of friendship roles. Their family roles will have changed, you know, what it means to be a son or a daughter or, um, you know, an adult child is different from what it means when, when the person is five or six, right? So you can think about where you're heading and then think, well, if these are the kinds of social roles that my child is going to have as an early adult, what do they need now? You know, like what are the kinds of opportunities five years earlier that they're going to need to have? What did I have as a, you know, now looking back on my own life and the life of the people that I know, what kinds of things happened at different stages in our lives that helped us to be ready for the social roles that typically allow us to build social capital and build the good things in life. Yeah. Like uh, maybe having a first job as a teenager, just by, you know, m like you said, mowing the lawn or just being of help in the community. Yeah, exactly. And then it, we don't get many good things in life outside of a social role. In fact, I would argue there are none. So, you know, in order to get a paycheck, you need to be an employee or a citizen if you have some sort of social safety net, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't get to, you don't get a paycheck or you don't get income without a social role that has that as one of the benefits. You don't get to hang out um, with a bunch of other really cool, fun people who know you really well and, um, you know, have snacks and maybe a beer in a bar um, if you aren't in the role of friend, right? Like those things come, I mean, maybe those things are not considered to be good things for, for every parent as they're thinking, but do you know what I mean? It doesn't really matter what yeah. the, what you can imagine is a good thing in life. You get access to it based on your social roles. This is a very interesting social construct. I don't think I ever heard of this before, like in this context. Um, but what about, you know, just having the role of human that you exist, that you're a person? Does that count? No, because <laughs> like breaking down roles, it means that it's exclusive to other things. It is exclusive to other things. That's one of the important reasons to, to think about social roles. So I don't think being a human is a role. That's more of a just designation. Although people with disabilities also often get cast out of the role of being fully human. So that's a whole other conversation. But if you think about when we're talking about people with disabilities and their potential as adults, when you're raising your kids, one really prominent social role that is not fully negative, but can become negative um, as far as its influence on your, on your life is the role of client. So all of us are clients of someone in some 
some agencies or organizations or institutions, right? But for most of us, the role of client is something that happens in the background when we have time to fit it in. But for people with disabilities, the role of clients can become their single most dominant role. And so what comes with the, when, when your life is defined by being a client of social services in particular, then that actually comes with a whole lot of bad stuff, you know? And so you tend to have um, people managing you, making decisions on your behalf, often, you know, without your, your contribution or, or influence. Um, you are seen as a taker, not a contributor. Um, you know, like it's, it's not a particularly, it doesn't create a, a happy image of the good things in life. If your life is dominated by the role of client. And that, I think that's also defined by you paying for receiving services. Well, it, maybe even not directly you being the payer, but there is a payment transaction. It there, you know, a monetary transaction as opposed to a friend to friend that's right. or family where they're, where that's not a monetary transaction. There's still transactions taking place, but in the client to provider relationship, there's always going to be that. Well, your element. point is so incredibly powerful because if you imagine if your child with a disability, if their dominant role in life is client, it means that most of the people they spend time with are paid to be with them. Yeah. And so that is not... That is, you know, that is not the kind of life we're, we're shooting for. And, you know, lots of us, again, are going to have many client roles in our lives where those, those um, relationships are defined by people being paid to um, be with us. And it's not a problem until it dominates our life. Like I probably have dozens of client roles, you know, and I'd have to pause to think about them because they don't. The, 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 what I get out of those client roles is, is good and positive. You know, I get right. service, goods and services, yeah, I get goods and services and it makes my life better, yeah. but I'd have to pause to think about what they all are because I don't, it doesn't matter that much in how I experience my life. I only experience the benefits of the goods and services in service of me having, um, you know, a rich life embedded in family, friends, and community. Do you consider being a patient in the, in that category as well? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it's fine to be a patient, but if you are mostly and primarily a patient, that's, that's not something that many of us would say, yes. You know, when I think of the good things in life, I think about being primarily a patient. Right. No, right. that's not. I remember the first time I, I kind of realized that, that there was a major overlap between being a patient and being a client that, you know, those kind of connotations really overlap. When I uh, was pregnant and I had a very, very bad interaction with the OBGYN office, long story, but my husband was like, you can fire them. You are their client. So <laughs> you can just be like, I don't want service here anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? They're my, my doctor. And he's like, no, they're your service provider. Therefore you get service somewhere else, yeah. from a better provider. Yeah. And that just blew my mind. That was like an outside of the context that I had imagined this, you know, authoritative yeah. uh, medical model above me. Yeah. And he's like, switch doctors. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the difference being that for many, many people with disabilities, firing their provider is not an option because they will, right. the consequences of that can be um, immediately devastating if they don't have the supports that they need. And there are often yeah. no, no better alternatives. alternatives. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So of course, not, not every person with a disability is going to have this experience of their life being dominated by the client or patient role. Um, but many will if their parents haven't created a positive vision of an alternative. Because if you look at what happens to people currently and historically, people get sluiced into services and it just carries people away. You know, if there's, if somebody is not saying, well, no, actually I, you know, my kid belongs with their peers 
And you got to figure that out, you know, if they need supports and you got to figure out how to provide those supports um, with their peers. And sometimes we're going to delve into, um, you know, as the patient example, you know, sometimes we're going to go to a hospital, everybody there is a patient, that's fine. But we're, you know, we're going to keep our vision embedded in, um, you know, a rich and positive contributing life in community. And also, I think asking the question of the possibility, not just friend relationships, but also romantic relationships. Of course, yeah, for the for the future, which, which I think is on on a lot of people's um, on their question list. You know, will my child be able to navigate that? Because that that whole thing is complicated for everybody. It's like yeah. relationships and sexuality and all the things that come with growing up and you know becoming an adult and. What are some of the challenges that we see in this community yep. in building? I don't know if capacity is the right word. That's not the right word. Well, but, but opportunity. Opportunity and, and relationship competency. And, um, you know, the, if you think about your, your child as an adult and in a um, romantic relationship, one of the things that's really common for kids with disabilities of all types is a deprivation of experience. And so you know, if parents aren't thinking that their child might have a romantic relationship, then, you know, when they're six, they're maybe not taught, I'm making these ages up, but when they're six, they're not talking about, you know, your body, your choice necessarily, you know, like, and, and when they're 12, they're not necessarily talking about, you know, sexuality and reproduction. And when they're like, there's all these things that we typically do within the context of our own family values and, um, culture, community, like all of those things, right? Changes from family to family. But we all have some, and some people just don't deal with it at all, which is also, um, you know, a choice. But but we all make choices about how we are going to um, prepare our kids for healthy adult relationships, or at least we think we're doing, we think we are. Um, and, um, but kids with disabilities often, it ne- it's like, it's not even a possibility. So it never gets covered. So if it's a possibility, then we can, um, then we can start thinking about like, what kinds of opportunities do our kids need? Um, and, and we can be including that in the way that we're raising them now. And to give them some protection and resilience and, and being able to uh, know and recognize when something is not right, as I think mm. the population is vulnerable to abuse. Absolutely, at much higher rates. Absolutely, it's very important. And I think you know the other thing I'm just kind of uh, reflecting on is that one of the fascinating things that studying and being involved with um, communities that are really exploring disability uh, is that it it makes us have to calm down and say, well, what are our values, what are our goals? Because you don't have a choice not to. You're gonna, you're gonna have to come up with the vision, you know, and that, and then that opens the conversation for, for everyone around us, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I think even, even like you mentioned, being in proximity to your sister and your, and your growing up and the way your mom was raising you guys, that, that made you have to be aware of a lot of things that children growing in other families would never maybe have any awareness mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Yeah. So this is very valuable for any parent listening, but hopefully our listeners are getting some good ideas and interesting, thought provoking, philosophical questions that are extremely practical. Excellent. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) So those are the three. Let's, let's say them. So the three things that, that I suggested parents think about if they're thinking about raising kids to be future adults is um, the idea of interdependence as opposed to independence social capital, and valued social roles. Excellent. Those are three really important frameworks to be looking at so that our kids can have good things in life. Yes. I love that. It's so positive. It's so, it's aspirational. And I think that's a a good place to be. Well, and when we're thinking about parenting, I mean, everything we do is really in service of our aspirations. So it just makes sense that we would have that same approach for our kids with disabilities and to look at our values and how we can help our children to develop a positive vision for their life also. And not just only to do this for them, but to show them how they can then do this for themselves. Right. 
My last question for you is about ideas and practical tips for how parents can actually create opportunities for their children to have those friendships and build up social capital. What are the things that you can do at different ages or different environments to help foster that? Mm -hmm. I know I've given some examples already, but if you just want to end off with some. Sure. So I have a a resource um, for people on thinking about creating a vision for their children and people can find that at goodthingsinlife.org forward slash 2020 was a created for, you know, the year of 2020. And, and I think that people might get, a a beginning sense of that from that resource, social roles is kind of the thing to focus on because when you start breaking down social roles, it gives you really some highly actionable ideas around what people can do to help build um, interpersonal identification between their kids and other kids. They can think about like what some possibilities for success might be around constructing social opportunities for their kids. Um, but really what you're, what you're looking to is how does this happen usually? You know, all of, all of these ideas are really just providing a framework for people to go back and think about how does this happen in people's lives? You know, so one of the things, for example, that is Janet Cleese talks about, about this, if people are scrolling through my podcast episodes, or I can give you the link to this if you want, Lila, but Janet Cleese talks about building a context for relationship. And I I think maybe that's what you're asking about, at least in part. Mm -hmm. Janet says, you know, first you have to be in the same space as people. So people are not going to make friends with other people if they don't spend time with other people. And you can't just be there once. You have to be there over and over again. You have to be there regularly and predictably. And so we can think about our, for our kids, where are the places where other kids come together over and over again, regularly and predictably? Because if that's not happening, it's very unlikely that we're going to develop a relationship, right? And then we have to think about, you know, the, the context for that coming together. So, if you're bringing kids together in the same space regularly and predictably, but one child is going with the expectation that they're going to play floor hockey and another child is going with the expectation that they're going to play trombone. And, you know, you're, you're sort of like, there's no reason for them to interact with each other in a way that they understand, then they're probably not going to connect. So there needs to be a context of some kind. The context can be playing at the park at the, you know, at the end of your street or your neighborhood. The context can be an art class or floor hockey or trombone lessons or, you know, whatever, but there needs to be some context. So you can't just show up without a reason for being there that the other kids will recognize as valid. Just like I was saying about school, like, only certain people can come to the school and walk in and be welcomed, right? If you're just some random dude off the street, you don't get to do that. And, and in the same way, if your kid has no context for being in a place regularly and, and uh, predictably, then it's probably not going to work very well. And that context needs to be highly valued. Like it needs to be relevant and good in the eyes of the people that your kid might make friends with. So not the dentist's waiting room. <laughs> well, because there might all be kids who are there predictably, you know, if they are getting like, I don't know, all the kids getting braces around the same time or something. Right. Maybe, but not pleasant. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, it's true. Pleasant helps, particularly okay. if you're trying to break down barriers between kids, right? Yeah. Then pleasant experiences, places where your child is likely to be successful in their social interactions and be seen as a pleasant addition is more likely to lead to friendship than something that stresses your child out and where they're likely to, you know, not be their best self. Um, But the other thing, the last thing I was going to say is that um, highlighting things that people have in common is also a really powerful way to encourage friendship. So actually those, you know, pubescent kids who are all forced to sit in the orthodontist waiting room because they're all getting braces at the same time might be something that they will bond over. Right. But we, as much as we value 
and, and appreciate and need and depend on diversity, we actually connect over sameness. And the sameness doesn't have to be the, the same kinds of things that tend to divide our society. It can be little things like, you know, my mouth hurts too. Like I'm, yeah. I've got braces, you've got braces, my mouth hurts too. The kids could be dramatically different otherwise. Um, but there, ha there has to be some reason that they see themselves as having something in common. And sometimes parents are going to have to highlight that for their own child and perhaps for the other children um, so that the kids have a reason to, to connect over a commonality. And we have a role to play in that. Uh, yeah. Sometimes if the child's communication barriers, for example, are still significant and they can't communicate that very effectively themselves. And absolutely the parent can take an active role in helping their child and their, um, and the potential friends to see and find those commonalities. And I think this circles way back to what we spoke about in the beginning, which is that children with the same diagnosis or, you know, who have similar special needs might have nothing else in common besides for that and might have very different needs and very different mm -hmm. um, experiences of that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that in hearing loss a lot because there are so many different severities of hearing loss where someone with a mild hearing loss and someone with a profound hearing loss, it's two different experiences, two different treatment plans, two different environments that they need for education. And even though an audiologist might see both of them, they might have absolutely nothing in common, you know, just based on that. Mm -hmm like that they both have hearing loss, but yeah. very different kinds of hearing loss. Yeah. 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 That's a whole other episode thinking about how we, yeah. <laughs> how we group kids and the, the potential positives and the dangers and yeah. Well, I am so, so grateful for this conversation. I learned a lot, a lot of new vocabulary for me and I hope for some of you listeners and you know, if people want to come and find you, they go to the good things in life podcast. And if they want to come find you, they can visit at goodthingsinlife.org. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. This was a great conversation.